רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. The first programming language I've ever learned was C++. I had this great Hebrew book, Learn C++ as a Native. And this is why I'm extremely honored and privileged and thrilled to have on the show today, Bjarne Struestrop. Now, Bjarne Struestrop is a computer scientist, a visiting professor at Columbia University, and, and this is most important, the inventor of the C++ language. programming language. He has written many books on programming and is a colorful character in the world of computer science. Now today we are going to discuss programming, computer science, how to excel in those fields and of course C++. So Bjarne, thank you so much for coming. How are you? Uh, thank you. Thank you for in- inviting me. Um, I'm actually doing really nicely I'm visiting my home country of Denmark and having a little bit of rest and actually also working on a book so uh, oh good let me think this is going to be a C++ book of course it's <laughs> going to be the third edition of a tour of C++ uh, okay it's a relatively thin book introducing the language to people who already knows how to program. I wanted to show you my Hebrew version of, 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 the, of the C++ because it's a, it's a big thing here in Israel and C++ was a, we caught by storm that everyone in, I think in, in the 90s, all, all, the, all the youth in, in academia, all of us learned C++. It was a very big thing, I, I think in all around the world. But before we dive in into C++, I... Uh, I read your biography, and this is a very impressive biography. You had David Wheeler as your PhD, as, as your PhD supervisor. You worked at Bell Labs in the golden years. You know, you met Shannon, I think, and, and, and Dennis Ritchie and all the other good guys. And could you please name one or two people who influence you or influence your work in Bell Labs? Yeah, uh, no, I did not meet Shannon. Uh, he's a couple of generations before me, technical gener- generations, that is. Um, I would say I talked a lot to, to people at the labs, uh, Brian Kernighan, uh, a lot with him. I talked a lot with Alejo um, and uh, Doc McElroy, who's not as well known, but He, he was the most amazing guy there. He was the one everybody went to when they had a problem that was really hard. Not just me, Dennis Ritchie, Ken Thompson, everybody. Uh, and uh, Doug was the fastest person to understand not just what you said, but the implications. And so he was really interesting to uh, talk to. Um, lots of people like that, but he was... Uh, he was uh, 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 um, sort of an order of magnitude better than most. Uh, he was the one that devised and wrote all the manual pages of the early Unix. So that style of writing uh, 
empty man pages uh, was was his work. Wow, it's before the age of Linus Travius. <laughs> oh, long before. <laughs> and uh, do you think you know many people talk and we talk about Bell Labs that it was really a golden age that so many good things came out of it. Do you think that we can somehow replicate what happened there to you know make again some great stuff? What was the magic in Bell Lab? I'm not sure if we can do it again, uh, but uh, I can tell you what I think uh, was made it uh, work. Uh, for starters, it was stable funding for decades. That is, if you were, a department head in charge of a few people or a director, uh, you would be reasonable certain that if you didn't do anything uh, really bad and planned well, you, you could have things uh, going on um, almost for the, the career. You didn't have people looking to try and please the next boss and the next company. They could actually try and do good work and be reasonable certain that you'd be uh, rewarded. Um, you didn't get rich at Bell Labs, but you could do splendid work. I, I used to think and say that you could, well, you had a choice. You could get rich or you could get famous. Uh, it's very hard to do both. And I certainly didn't have the skills for it. And most people working at the labs were thinking in the same way. And we were all coming down, doing great work and uh, that, Uh, is good. Um, then it was not very directed work. That is, um, the idea was to let uh, bright people loose and uh, encourage them to look at real world problems and come up with something useful. I mean, my first definition of my job, Bell Labs, was um, you come Do something interesting and uh, tell us next year uh, what you did on one sheet of paper, uh, font larger than nine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we also did uh, typesetting. Um, and uh, if we like what you did, you'll get the same deal next year. Oh, okay, so just a second. You mentioned two things. Now, one thing that, you know, It wasn't a guy up your shoulder say, okay, what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? And again, it was very loose. And uh, now Google research, Microsoft research, Facebook research, they have some sort of, you know, let their employees uh, search or research whatever they want, but we want, let tell me what you did. And we think that some of, what drive the, the high-tech uh, train is that we, you know, that we set goals. And you say, no, the ideas, the mere ideas that we didn't set specific goals in Bell Labs, what part of what made it so unique and so magic? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, it puts an enormous burden on the managers that, the first level managers who actually was department heads and only were in charge of a handful of people, eight, 10 people maybe. They really, really had to understand and be able to guide and to, to supervise 
but it was a very light touch. I was not told what to do, ever. Um, on the other hand, I talked to people like, say, Brian Kernighan about what would be useful. Uh, I also served there as a department head for seven years, so I know how it works from the other side. And the basic idea, as it was explained to me, and as I think I saw it in action, is that a department head in charge of, so say 10 uh, researchers, all, all, all either um, geniuses or PhDs from a good school. It's easier to be a PhD from a good school than being a genius. And, but that kind of bunch, and you have a pipeline and every year something should drop out of the pipeline. So one or more people from the department has to do something that people take notice of. And it is your job to make sure that the pipeline runs forever. Some things take a short time, sometimes take a long time, and you just have to make sure that things move along. Um, the the rewards, reward system was um, quite interesting. Uh, it, it was explained to me uh, that basically we look at people on two axes. There is the um, scientific output, you know, uh, fame dust and things like that. And then there's the, the value to the uh, corporation. Um, and AT&T at the time did just about anything with, um, with, um, with communications. I mean, we even had psychologists looking into how people communicate and things like that. But anyway, you have these two dimensions and most people sort of are on a curve here. They, 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 there's people that are mostly academic and people that are mostly um, business oriented. Of course, the ideal person is up here. Extreme, <laughs> extremely intelligent and extremely communicative. Um, but it's very hard that's, you know, that's true. to meet I mean, those you, two you criteria. Can't, you, can't be, you can't be effective as a scientist or as an engineer or as a product developer unless you can communicate. You have to be able to listen. You have to be able to write. You have to be able to speak, give presentations. Uh, and it's a two-way thing. It really is communication. It's not just spewing out uh, what... Uh, thinking because then, then you're just following fashions mostly. Uh, one of the things in the labs was a very wide range of interesting problems we had. That and the great colleagues so that you could go and uh, talk to them about it was part of it. But the formal system was this kind of formula of uh, you, you, you see where you are on the um, science versus uh, product uh, th uh, thing, and you sort of multiply the two and see that's that's your reward. The rewards were not uh, going through the ceiling, and people were sometimes grumping that they didn't get a really great result um, in terms of money or a really great result of work, but it averaged out over time. So if you had a really good year, you may not think you got enough. But if you then after that are tired and doesn't deliver anything significant in the next two years, it still keeps going. There's a, there's a smoothing of the curve that, that was being done. 
And, and so I've but, described what um, what I saw, and I think those are the answers to your question. Uh, but of course, different people have different views. But you think that this we cannot repeat this uh, infrastructure because now it's very hard to hire very talented people without paying paying them accordingly. Especially when, uh, when the high-tech industry pays so much? I think that's part of the problem. Um, everybody coming out of uh, universities seems to want to get rich quick. And uh, there are fewer people that are sort of grounded in wanting to put, pull the uh, science or the engineering uh, forward uh, as their main goal. Um, I'm often asked, why didn't you uh, start a company? Why, why didn't you just popularize C++? If, if I got a penny for every compilation that's done, I would be uh, rich as curses. And so why Every time you, you write C out or C in, you need to pay DRN one cent. Yeah, that's a great idea, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, so, no, but point is, If I had decided to be a, a startup business, say at the time where C++ was starting and people were suggesting this to me uh, a lot, um, I would first of all have to wear a suit and become a salesman. I would have to become a manager. And I would have to change my designs to please potential customers. So Agreed. I would have to be something that I'm not very good at and I don't enjoy. And my work would be uh, basically corrupted by a need for money. And so I didn't. And we have C++. Yes. Uh, but there is another thing that strikes me and it's very, uh, because I'm part in the academia and in the industry. And the thing is about sharing because Uh, university and academia basically is all about sharing and the Google Microsoft this is like it's it's the data is basically the commodity so it's not about sharing and I think that the that the policy of sharing in Bell Labs were, was much more flexible people were much more willing to share their ideas and their thoughts and though you know like raw thoughts not not like very good thoughts. And the idea that people are willing to share is a has a tremendous impact on the society. And nowadays we don't see it because even if I publish a paper, I don't really share because I don't give the, all the algorithm and I hide something. What's your take on that? I think that uh, it's roughly right. Uh, one of the things at Bell Labs was that it was a combination of science and engineering and product development. And so there was this interaction and also the uh, rules for what we could publish and what kind of publishing we could do were very flexible um, and uh, any control there were um, was among these uh, department heads and directors who understood exactly what was going on. Um, I was encouraged to write papers, but uh, my department head at the time, uh, Sandy Fraser, who was the one that uh, did some of the early networking stuff, 
virtual uh, circuit, um, his idea. And uh, I said, well, I've got this great idea. I mean, you know, all of your PhDs are full of great ideas, <laughs> right? And um, I built this uh, language and it works. And uh, I have a couple of users, including you. I want to write a paper about it. And so he looks at me and says, Piana, you know, I think you should wait a year or so and see if it really works. Ah, I mean, uh, in modern academia, that don't is do it. suicide. You have a raw idea. Okay, let's publish. Exactly. Somebody might get it before you, uh, get it published before you and take the credit. There was none of that. This Similarly, is so intuitive to modern academia. What yes. this advice. It's, career, it's a career uh, killer. If you wait and um, you can't wait. Uh, yes. Furthermore, don't hype. Never hype. Uh, well, that's not modern either. Uh, and furthermore, get the whole solution, not just a little part of it. You, you don't go for the least publishable unit. You go for something that actually makes sense in terms of a system and a solution. And this is why, and, and this is why I think, you know, now the distance between some idea originated in academia and the way to actually implement it in real hardware, software or hardware is much, much bigger because the ideas the academia now produce are much more in a raw form and not in a fully polished form, just like, you know, unlike the advice that you got. Yeah, they, they are often far further from something that can be used than <laughs> the, that the average academic thinks. That is, if you are in academia and you solve 80% of the problem, you can write a paper, get it published in a good place, and you're a hero. If in industry you solve 80% of the problem, you're a failure because it doesn't run. Uh, yes. It hasn't been tried out, etc. So, so it, that's different. You know, in my hobby, I'm a magician, and there is a mm -hmm. and and there is a saying, a quote in the world of magic, that if you show a magician a trick and he understand ninety percent of the trick, but ten percent he didn't understand, he will say the trick will fool him. But if you show a layman, a non-magician, a trick, and he didn't understand 90%, but just 10% he understood, he said, no, the trick didn't fool me. So we just like in the academia and the industry. Now, with your permission, let's move on because we have so much to discuss. Sure. Okay. Now, there is two notions and they are quite similar, but not exactly. One is a computer scientist and another is a programmer. Now you say in your book, you write that you cannot write computer science without learning how to program. You need, you can't just you know, learn the abstract. You need, you know, to uh, drill down. But again, what distinguish a programmer from a computer scientist, in your opinion? Um, I attempt uh, not to use the word programmer very much because that is too narrowly understood what is the task is. I tend to use a developer or engineer. Um, and the thing that developers, is, developers, developers. <laughs> well, no, the point is that uh, you have to understand not just to program. A lot of people think they're programmers if they understand everything about a programming language. 
To be a good developer or a good engineer, you have to understand the problem. You have to understand the context of the problem. You have to understand the constraints of the solution. And so um, I, I, I tend to, to work in that space. The engineers tend to appreciate my work much more than computer scientists. Um, oh, this is nice. Uh, so, I mean, hey, I, I, I got the Draper Award. It's the highest uh, engineering award. Um, they really okay, so let me so let me uh, state it differently. Can you be a good developer without introduction to algorithms by Coleman, without like knowing some of the skills that we let that we teach in computer science? Can we can you can you be a good developer without it? I think that a good grounding in what's called computer science, classical computer science is important. I wouldn't pick a single book like Coleman. No, just uh, like- Because it depends a, what it is. You, you have to know, I, I think you should know machine architectures, uh, programming, algorithms, data structures for a starter. And then you have to do something else to specialize like say graphics or databases or something like that but but you, i think you need a solid foundation because you don't actually know where your work will be in five years and uh, you better be ready anyway and then you do that by a broad-based uh, fairly classical education okay now the idea is that engineers engineers appreciate your work more than computer scientists i'm I, i'm going to quote again and again in the following years this is a great idea now, another uh, thing is that in many interviews, you repeat the idea that one cannot be a good programmer or developer if she knows only one programming language. And you say that you need approximately five. Now, of course, knowing more programming language will enable you to program in those languages. If I know C++ and Python, I can uh, uh, program in C++ and Python. But my question is, do I need to know Python in order to enhance my C++ skill? And if so, why? Um, now, first of all, um, the number five was pulled out of a head. It's <laughs> not a bad number, but it's not an More absolute. than two, more than two. Definitely. Uh, first of all, um, more than one. I mean, you know the old joke, what do you call somebody who can speak three languages, trilingual, two languages, bilingual, one language, American. American yes. <laughs> that is, it is actually quite dangerous for your thought patterns to know only one language. This is natural languages. It is the same with uh, programming languages. The language is not just a language, not just a manual. It's a set of techniques. It's a set of libraries. It's a community. It's a way of doing things. And being limited to one means that you're sort of... Uh, you, 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 you have too weak a base to uh, attack new problems with. Um, so for natural languages and for uh, programming languages, uh, the most important step, as you uh, hinted, was uh, two, uh, but you can't uh, just stop at that. Um, I mean, I've never seen a real system uh, of, of any size being built in just one language. 
like when when I was working in the very early days of C++, C++ was meant to be used on Unix and Unix had the shell. Furthermore, uh, you had to reuse stuff. Everybody was going on about reuse. And I was all in favor of that because if I can get somebody else's code to do the work for me, um, I'm happy. There's a lot of work I don't get uh, to do. And so in, uh, in those days, the, the code to reuse was C and Fortran, mostly in my world. So you had to be able to use uh, C and Fortran. And so the initial systems that was coming out had C++, C++ uh, Fortran, Assembler, and uh, shell scripts. That happened to be five, but that was an accident. Okay, no, I, 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 let me, I want to focus on this point again, because I, I, I think about this point a lot. Now, I, I, I think that I totally understood your analogy, that you need, in a, that it is in natural language. It's much, it, it's much, it is much better that you know Hebrew and you know English and you know French. But again, when I, when I write in Python and there is like the Pythonic way of writing things, you know, with the Lambda and all this, did you do it the Pythonic way or did you do, didn't do it the Pythonic way? Now I cannot, you know, immigrate those techniques into C++ because this is basically Python. So again, why, this is great that I know Python. This is great, but do you really think that if I know another language like assembly and Python in C++, I will think differently. And even if, and even if I do think differently, I cannot apply those techniques in C++. I think I'll disagree here. Oh, okay, please. Um, uh, what you cannot import is language features and very detailed ways of doing things. But you can very often um, import a, an idea for how to organize a piece of code or to pass stuff around. Uh, a lot of those ideas, I think, do carry over. When people want to carry, go sort of simply grab something in one language and do a literal transcription into another language or the other way around, uh, you get a miss. Um, Andy Koenig did some experiments once with ML and C++. And the first thing you found was you take an ML program, you transcribe it naively to C++, you get something that is a bloated, unmaintainable, slow mess. Okay, do the same from C++ to ML and you get a slow, large, unmaintainable mess. However, if you step back and says, what were they really doing? How, how can I do something similar using the idioms and the techniques in C++? You actually get something that's not that incompatible, uh, but, but you have to do thinking and it's not, I mean, go back to, to natural languages. Um, uh, there's these jokes about uh, Germans learning English and speaking basically uh, German with English vocabulary <laughs> and vice versa. It's awful. But you can also learn and find that you want to express things that could be expressed very well in German or, 
French or something, and then saying, well, what is he saying? How is he saying it? How can I get the same idea across in, in English? Okay. Oh, so now... And, and, and curiously enough, I think we're both using a second language here. Yes, yes. And we know how to communicate. But, uh, but this is so true because many Israeli, when they speak English, they usually speak, and uh, I include myself in this uh, sham, uh, they also speak like in Hebrew language, like Chinglish. Like, uh, and this is not. Take, take, you know, the gist, take the data structure, take the way of thinking. But more often than not, you know, take the way of thinking out of the of, of thousands or hundreds lines of code is very challenging because you need to really, yes. truly understand what this language is all about. I only agree. Okay. Now, I don't, I, I have two paths to the talk from now on. One is object-oriented and then programming and then programming and then object-oriented. But with your permission, I will go with object-oriented. Now, according to Wikipedia, object-oriented programming is a programming paradigm. This is a very big word based on the, cost, con, based on the concept of object, which can contain data and code. Okay, now this according to Wikipedia, when you started developing C++ based on Simula and according to your Wikipedia, it was basic, it was initially it was C with classes. Did you have this notion in mind? Again, pro programming paradigm based on the concept of objects which contain data and code? Uh, yes. Um, I quite experienced with, with Simula and I knew the uh, strength of the class notion and the idea of building your own types. And to build your own types, they tend to have data, of course, and they tend to have operations on them. And uh, building up your own your world of your own types was a very key idea. And I knew I could break down uh, massive code bases and, and debug them uh, in, in, in chunks, classes, and uses of classes. Uh, that was quite uh, fundamental from, from, from day one. And uh, we actually didn't get virtual functions uh, and, and real class hierarchy for another three years because I couldn't admit and convince anybody that they were useful. But uh, the, the, the fundamental notion of a class uh, was there from the beginning. And the other thing that was there from the beginning was I needed something so that I could use classes uh, that were non-trivial. That is, they, they were resource handles. Uh, they had memories, they had file buffers, they had uh, file handles and things like that. So I needed to manage that. And for that, from there came the idea of constructors and destructors. At the time, no language had destructors. And if, if anybody had a language that could have an arbitrary set of uh, constructors from the same name, I, I don't uh, know about it. It seems likely that somebody had that. Uh, and, and that came in very, very early. And uh, one of the reasons that C++ didn't go fully uh, functional or anything like that early was that this is the idea, you have a class. 
Okay, now, now I must ask you, ask, ask you something because I teach uh, in the university for undergraduate, I teach C language, the C language. And the, the notion of struct in C language had these fields like uh, data and yeah. could have code and could have even a constructed. Now, if you go into, you know, like more advanced notion of object-oriented like inheritance and polymorphism, okay, struct doesn't have it. But if you look at the encapsulation things that you can build your own data type, you could have achieved it with C, with struct. Now, what was missing in C struct that was so powerful in C++ because when I learned it, when I was like 20 years ago, the main difference in the beginning was that the default data was, was defined private in C. Well, no, that was defined private in C++ and public in C. But this is not the main issue, the main difference. Um, let's see. First of all, you can do things in C uh, where you have a, a, a type and you access it only through pointers and you have a set of operations that goes through those pointers and only those functions are used. Uh, if you do that, you have something quite similar to C++. Um, however, that was not the common style at the time. I mean, look at the file structure. It's totally exposed and uh, you, you can poke at it. And you have to recompile if you make any change. So I was trying to get the data out of the way for these kinds of types so that I could change the representation when I wanted to, and also so that I could manipulate them without knowing what was uh, the underlying uh, um, complicated data structures. Because in C, you quite often then manipulate the top level and then you have to go down to the next level uh, to do it. And all over your code are functions that may or may not poke at the data. And I would like to know who pokes at the data so that I can make a change, so that I can understand the system. If you have a struct and pointers into that struct all over your programs, you don't understand what's going on. If you're writing a library, you can't make a change because somebody else that you don't know uh, may be using it in a way you haven't um, experienced. So encapsulation becomes quite uh, common. And I was actually talking to Brian Kernighan some years ago. And he said, did you think that we actually used it that way? You see that way? I don't think so. And I said, I don't think so either. What I remember people writing in, um, in C in the early ages, people did not uh, go on about APIs and uh, well-defined interfaces. They, they, they were working with uh, a mess of data structures and functions. And I wanted to organize my code differently and better. And most of those ideas came initially from, um, from Simula. Now, two other great concepts. One, inheritance, that one class can inherit several or some aspect from the 
master or the masoclast, and another is a polymorphic or the polymorphism, that one action or one function can manifest itself in different ways according to what you need. How did those two great notions came about? Who thought about them? Um, questionable. Uh, the designer of Simula and uh, the father of optical programming. And I happen to know him. He was a visiting professor in uh, the University of Aarhus. And I saw him uh, sort of once a month for a while. And he was a, a great talker, a great communicator. And I learned a lot from him. Came straight from there. None yes. of my handiwork. This is a great work. Now, a Another thing that I've always wanted to ask you, there is a great blog post and I think is, is I think it's famous, okay? It was execution in the kingdom of nouns. And the idea is very simple that uh, object oriented is basically want to imitate way of human thinking. But if you look at Java, yes, yeah, the kingdom of nouns, in the kingdom of Java land where King Java rules with his silicon fist, people aren't allowed to think the way you do and I do. In Java land, you see nouns are very important, okay? And he said, when we think about classes, we think about nouns, animal, car, students. And we, when we think about functions, we think about verbs, add, subtract, multiply. But maybe this way of thinking restricts ourselves from thinking much more efficiently and we don't need to think in terms of classes should be nouns and functions should be verbs. What do you think? I, I've never actually liked that uh, notion of nouns and verbs. Um, it's, it's oversimplifying. Uh, I remember very early on, like the, during the first year was I, I will not write x dot square root. I want square root of x. We have uh, several hundred years of math experience with that. So I do not want every function to be a member function. I want freestanding functions. And I wanted that from the start. People have complained that it's hybrid and not pure, et cetera. No, it is addressing something very important, which gets very natural. to a notion of a paradigm. I don't like the notion of a paradigm. I think Kuhn was so oversimplifying and it, it never was quite right. And uh, we, 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 we try to, to drive the way we express things from the problem we're trying to solve rather than building a tool and then seeing how we can apply it to, to everything. Because I don't think anybody has come up with something that is the best tool for everything. Um, I, I, I see a, a poster, for instance, they, they need 15 little hammers. Um, whereas a lot of people philosophizing about programming wants exactly one hammer that's true for everything. Okay, now I have three hard questions regarding C++, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. Very hard challenge. If you don't want, you don't need to answer, but uh, uh, this is hard questions. And... I have a friend, she, she is a PhD, she is a C++ expert, and she teaches at uh, Apple, Google, Microsoft, she teaches C++, she's a really expert, she teaches in the universities, in two, in two universities in Israel, and I told them, listen, I'm going to, to converse with 
Bjarin Strostrop. And uh, what do you have to say? Because she is much, much more expert than me. And mm-hmm. uh, this is what she had to uh, ask. One thing that is very, very problematic with C++ is a compatibility. You know, Python has Python 2 and that's it. And we moved on to Python 3. Many things that we want to preserve in the compatibility, C++ 11, 14, 17, whatever, we need to uh, also consider the earlier version. And do you consider this a serious drawback to the language? Do you think that we need to get rid of several of the things that we carry on with earlier version and like version 20 should be okay, no previous compatibility and we move on from there? I mean, everybody wants to get rid of the old uh, stuff that they don't like. And you get a group of 100 people and they can't agree what the the bad old stuff is. Um, You can remove something uh, that's important to get a major benefit and you hurt a lot of people. And in the C++ concept, uh, hurting a few people, maybe 100,000 people. Um, I don't like to do that. We have tried to deprecate things and it's been very, very hard to deprecate it. What we find is that uh, people that use code uh, force their implementers to maintain full compatibility, even when we try and ban it. Uh, We had the notion of deprecated features and try to get rid of old stuff and it has been mainly a failure. Um, I remember the representative from Sun in some of the early days when somebody, I don't think it was me, uh, proposed a, um, an incompatible feature. And he says, you do have to remember that just about any incompatibility will cost my company, um, I think it was $100 million. Oh, it's a large number because you have the, all your users, you have to maintain now two versions, you have to uh, please your users. If somebody has a library relying on one version uh, and somebody else has a library relying on another version, how do I use both of those libraries? So I get this upgrade um, mess where I can't upgrade before anybody else upgrades and they can't do it. Uh, we had an incompatible change in the definition of string from in, in 11, going from uh, copy on write till, uh, to, to the short string optimization because it was more or less necessary because of concurrency and people doing a lot of concurrent stuff, copy on write is a, is a poison uh, to, to the performance, and, but a lot of people didn't have it. There are still two versions of GCC, the standard library, because they haven't been able to get everybody on uh, on board yet. That was eleven years ago. Okay, so if I want, you know, to to put it in in different worlds, uh, the move or the change from Python two to Python three was much easier because we had not so much code written in Python two. And the uh, move or change from Python 3 to Python 4, if we are going to skip the compatibility, is going to be much challenging, just like in C++, where so much code has been written throughout the years. 
in yes. the earlier versions? Two comments. One, Python has a virtual machine. And so it has a single point where you can upgrade. C++ has uh, maybe five front ends and 20 back ends. There's not a single point where you can say, okay, now we are changing and you, the users, follow on. So we just can't do that. We can try and preach, but people don't listen. And the other thing is I read a paper about the upgrade from uh, Python, especially in the library area. And it seems that all the foundational libraries are now written in the union, the, 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 no, not the union, the subset of two and three so that you can use it from two and three. You cannot use any of the old stuff and you can't use any of the new stuff either. <laughs> um, this was the situation when that paper was written, which is a couple of years ago, an analysis of maybe 30 uh, Python uh, key libraries. Um, there's no really good okay, uh, okay. solution. There's really no, no good solution to the compatibility and moving forward. Everybody claims to have one. Uh, it's very easy to think of one, uh, but then you have to try and see how it works in the okay. real world. You I'm trying to do something else. I'm trying to do something oh. else. What uh, are you trying so to do? Given this problem, given that I cannot get rid of the old stuff, how can I let people write code in modern C++ without getting into the uh, old problems getting into the dark corners. And uh, that's what I call the core uh, guidelines. Uh, basically, it's a set of rules that can be supported by static analysis that basically says, uh, this is the recommended modern way of using it. Uh, if you're not using it, here's the way you can upgrade. Um, we are, we're, not, we're not changing the language but we are trying to change the use of the language. By raising warnings in do, do, during the compilation process? Um, I think more in the, the build process. I don't think the compiler can handle it. There's too many uh, different views of what is good and too many different uh, degrees of being able to uh, follow uh, the, the rules. So I'm thinking about a static analyzer and in particular, static analyzer that you can program. So um, some of this exists. It's, it's not fantasy. Uh, if you are in Visual Studio, you can turn on the uh, static analyzer. And you can basically ask it to detect any violations of memory safety. OK, let's write it. Static what? Stat Static analyzer. Uh, let me just show people. Uh, okay. 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 Now, okay. There's, there's also a reason, a performance reason. That is, if, if we, we can't decide exactly what's good in the compiler and issue a whole bunch of warnings, that will drown you. Uh, furthermore, checking everything according to everybody's views will just slow the compiler down immensely. That's why I'm saying a static analyzer. You can run it 
uh, if you have a problem, you can run it if before you ship. Uh, but then you will get static guarantees that couldn't be done in, um, in just a compiler. So we are going to solve the compatibility problem by education. This is great stuff by education and Visual Studio Code. This is great. Okay. No, not, not, not Visual Studio. I really, really wish that that analyzer was compiler independent because the ideas are compiler independent. Okay. And, uh, Another tough question. This was tough question number one. Are you ready to tough question number two? Sure. Okay. Now, the idea that, you know, the notion of nouns and verbs is oversimplified is because we use like, you know, like uh, kindergarten examples when we teach in the universities. And the reason is that C++ became a very complex, hard to digest language. If you use compile time programming, it's very hard to compile since you don't see the code the compiler creates and you cannot just insert breakpoint. And it's also challenging to use the debugger efficiently, which leads to the fact that the very new complex architecture of C++ is too complex to the average undergraduate students. Would you agree? Um. Not really, because you can teach it successfully to freshmen, so there has to be a flaw in that argument. But certainly it's too complex. There is this thing that happens to me at least twice uh, every month. Somebody comes up to me and says, C++ is far too complicated. We, we need to simplify. And I agree, it's too complex. By the way, while you are simplifying it, there's these two features that are absolutely essential to me that you have to add. Oh, and, and, and by the way, I've got a million lines of code, so don't break it. <laughs> and this is uh, what I think of as the trilemma. Um, okay. you, you, you just can't do it. And so what I'm focusing on is not the language, but the use of the language. And that's where the core guidelines comes in because you can't just teach your way out of this. You have to have tool support. I want to give like an, uh, this great, it, it, I, I, I'm sure that you're familiar with the quote. It's uh, by Alan Kay. This is the most precious thing about pernicious and Java that they think they are helping the programmer by looking as much like the old thing as possible. But in fact, they're hurting the program terribly by making it difficult for the program to understand what is really powerful about this new, about this new metaphor. And maybe like in the course of evolution, people say, okay, C++ is great, but it, it, it just became too complex. We need to go to Rust. So maybe it, 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 it's like, like okay, it, it, when, when I was an undergraduate student, people used to say, okay, Java is just C++ without the pointers. And now it's okay, C++ is great. We need the object oriented. You know, we, we have doubt by Google for the Flutter uh, framework. Maybe Rust is going to be like, okay, C++ down to planet earth. What do you think? Because you have obviously thought about it. Yeah, I, I basically answered it, but let me point out something. When JAMA came out, it was advertised as a solution. 
I mean, so you, as you said, C++ without pointers. No, it's all pointers. That's what the reference semantics, the pointer semantics is. Uh, anyway, my response was, I, I think that the uh, Java white paper is seriously dishonest. It is claiming to be better than everybody in every possible way. This is not going to happen. It's better than small talk for object oriented. It's better than C++ for low level programming, da 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 da. It's better than anything for safety and performance and such. That's not the case, but that's how you sell a new language. That's what we have heard with every new language coming along. And I didn't want to get into a, a serious uh, language war, religious war. So what I actually said was that, you know, uh, there, there will be things for which Java is good. And if it survives, um, then it will grow dramatically and become much better for it. And last time I checked, it was about three times as big as it was when it came out and was better than everything else and simpler than everything else. I mean, you have people claiming it will kill, absolutely kill C++ in two years. Um, that's a direct quote. And uh, that you needed the garbage collector and you, and then you find there's huge chunks of, of the, uh, the problem domain that's not being addressed. And so you, you often have the ch choice between a, a language that's too complex or dealing with 10 different languages and the interaction between the 10 different languages. But, the, but again, my question is, what percentage of C++ developers are fully capable of harnessing all the, all the richness of the language because again my friend is a phd expert in c++ and she said okay i can manage it but most of my students are they cannot even dream to you know to utilize 50% of what c++ I, has to offer first of all uh, if they can manage 50% i should be happy and they should build really good systems okay, okay. compared to what you can do in other languages Nobody should be using the full language all the time for every problem. It addresses several domains. You don't write the same code for a Google uh, server farm as you write for the mass copter. There are different constraints to the problem. Secondly, there's a lot of teachers that try to teach all of C++. And I think it's a fundamental mistake. I, um, I had a serious debate with a C++ expert that writes books that explains just about everything. And I'm saying, this is not the way you teach C++. You teach a simpler, a subset. Uh, you focus on techniques, not language features. I really don't like when people write, say, that this has happened, a book, a whole book, several hundred pages on how pointers are in C. And they do similar things to, to C++. It's insane. I've seen two chapters of a beginner's book focus on how to write an if statement. But that's not a problem. We need a syntax for what we learned in kindergarten. If the light is red, stop. When the light is green, you may go. Okay, now you just have to have a syntax for it. And the C and C++ syntax for it is ugly. 
But so what? We knew how to do that before we came to the programming class. And too many teachers, in my opinion, try to teach too much. And too many students are smart, smart alecky and want to know everything and show everything and show their expertise. When I was teaching freshmen, I was teaching people to start out with, I didn't use pointers, I used vectors, I used strings. And there was always somebody who sooner or later said, well, it would be more efficient if I use pointers and arrays than to use vectors. First of all, it's untrue. And secondly, I'm now happy because I've found uh, my target. I said, uh, more efficient. Um, did, did you compile with minus O2 or minus uh, or, or default? Do. Okay, did you know that you run uh, about 10 to 25 times faster if you turn on the optimizer? And apart from that, uh, don't you like to go to bed at night? Uh, because uh, you are writing so many bugs that you have to fix and you have to spend all your time in debugger, which you don't know how to use. For now, follow my advice, stay high level, go to the lower level when you need to. Yes, in, in your book, Programming Principle and Practice Using C++, you said so many smart things about how to teach programming. And I'm going to uh, dive into it, but... One last question. I asked on Quora, if you could ask Bjarne Sturstrup one question, what would it be? And one, and one uh, developer said, why, why, why did you promote the T asterisk P and T ampersand R style for declaring pointers and reference? How many questions I've seen on how many programming websites asking why T asterisk P uh, Q doesn't declare Q as a pointer? You can forgive everything, but this was uh, too much for me. So Okay, so um, this, why? Is, uh, this is fundamental. Uh, I know the grammar of C++, but there's a difference between how you think about the problem and how the uh, language features are. People that put the pointer, uh, the star over on P usually think of it as P points to a T. And whether where you think about this is a pointer. It's a different way of thinking about it and you focus on uh, different aspects. Uh, people that put it over to P are usually very proud of being language technically correct. Whereas people who think about um, variables having types um, usually get further. And I like to think of as P has the type T star, not P points to a T. Uh. And if you generalize over a larger space of types, uh, thinking about every uh, variable having a type and having rules about them, uh, not, not thinking about how to decompose expressions. Uh, apart from that, the C syntax for arrays and pointers and function pointers were just not a great idea. Okay. It came, it came because they needed a really, really cheap parser in a machine that had, uh, I think it was 48K of memory. Okay. Now let's move on to something uh, much more fun. 
to me. In your book, which is a great book, Programming Principles and Practice Using C++, in the beginning, in the uh, introduction, you say, how your, what's your approach towards programming? And you say, okay, I don't like the bottom-up approach and I don't like the top-down approach. The bottom-up approach I don't like because I need to see the big picture before I start digging with T asterisk P. But I don't like the top-down approach because it's not, it's, it's, it's neither good. So if you don't like the top down and the bottom up, what is the best approach to learn programming? Um, I think to learn programming, you need supporting libraries so that you don't have to go down to the bottom all the time. And you need to spend some time looking at the problem. And what you do instead of bottom up or top down, it, it's sort of a bit going up and down. People have called it yo-yo. But you, you see what the um, you, you you see what the problem is that you understand, then you look for tools to help you uh, build what you want. And uh, then you find that the tools may not be good enough, you might improve it. And when you have good tools, you can actually do a better job at the design. Uh, experience is needed. This is not something that uh, is uh, particularly um, comfortable for a ranked beginner. Oh. Uh, one of the things that a lot of people who think of themselves as programmers forget is the domain knowledge. I, I, I go on about how you need to know a domain. You have to Embed, you have to go and talk to people in that domain, you have to learn their vocabulary. We forgot it in the deep thinking. learning industry, you know, in the realm of deep learning, you say we don't need to be familiar with the domain, we just inject everything into the neural networks, but it's not true. You need, even in deep learning, you need to be familiar with the domain. Yeah. And many people say, you know, the difference between machine learning and deep learning is how, how expert you need to be in the domain. But it's not true. You need to know, you'll be familiar with the essence of the problems that you are, you are trying to solve. Otherwise, you just find the AIs uh, picking out the... Uh the most common or the most effective uh, ways. I mean, you remember the, uh, the experiment that Microsoft did? It took three days for their chatbot to become a Nazi. <laughs> yes. I mean, if you want uh, to create sensation, want to create, um, uh, what's it called, attention and such, you, you have to be outrageous. And the AI learned that in two or three days. Okay. Uh, question number two, uh, you also address your talks to educators, to researchers. When you teach C++, don't, you know, don't tell me I'm very smart. I'm like the, the, the smartest researcher in the world, the smartest developer. Just do it step by step. So what's your most important advice to educators in the university who teach those subjects, how to become a better C++ teacher. Try and keep it simple and not be too clever, not to go into every uh, detail immediately. Um, if you look at the 
videos on YouTube. This is not the way all teachers do it, but you see them there and there's so many people that are a trainer or a researcher or a very advanced uh, developer giving a talk. And the worst ones are of the following form. Look at this. It's complicated. You don't understand it. I understand it, so I'm smarter than you. Don't ever do that. That may be a good sales trick, uh, but it is it is dishonest. I must tell you, and, I've and it doesn't never, help. It doesn't help the user. You know, yeah. I must tell you, I've never. Sometimes when you compile something, you know, it it opens the iostream.h or .cpp. I have never understood those code in. It's like written in a different language, yeah. really a different language. So I, don't, I have, don't I be have, like I have, this. I have, don't, don't feel that you have to explain all of that. If you can uh, see IO streams, it can pop things out and you can get things back in again. Fine, that's it. When did you last look at the implementation of square root? In my case, 45 years, 50 years ago, I don't need to do that. People that are better at um, floating point arithmetic uh, did that and algorithms. I don't have to touch it again. Now, um, another question. In your book, again, you mentioned the term good code. You mentioned it, good code. Now, in my opinion, as an engineer, I tell my students that a good code is a code that you can revisit after six months and still understand what's going on and, be, and still be able to implement or re-implement. What's your definition of good code? Um, maintainable, um, addressing a, a problem domain correctly and reasonably efficient. Reasonably efficient. Okay, you know. Well, yeah, if a... it's if it's not reasonable efficient, it's not affordable, and people will go to something more complicated. You know, Jeff Hinton, uh, the godfather of AI, once said in a Google talk, he he he, he explained some algorithms that that he that he has developed, and he said it took me twenty years to make these algorithms to make this algorithm one thousand times faster, but in these twenty years computers became one million times faster. Um, there are always people who claim efficiency doesn't matter. I've heard this argument again and again. I was told at the first- No, 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 just a second, just a second, just a second. It's not okay. my argument. My argument is that the optimizer of the Java optimizer, the Python optimizer, all, you know, that, you know, when, when I compile thing in Java, the memory optimization, unless I'm extremely talented, with, will be much, much, much better from anything I can achieve with C++, with my undergraduate abilities. This is my point. My point I is- I don't believe you. <laughs> you know, because I, my I, professor- I have, seen, I have seen experts trying to tune Java for the same tasks as experts were doing similar things in C++ and there was no competition. No, 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 no. It, it, it's not what they say. My professor used to go, uh, give us a student. He said, okay, this is a Java code. 
and this one in, I don't know, two seconds, okay? Now try to make this code more efficient in C++. Now the, the good student usually made it 100 times slower, slower. Now it's not because C++ is not good, it's because the student doesn't know how to optimize because in order, because if you want to truly know how to optimize, you need to understand memory allocation. You need to understand many things that the yes. average developer doesn't understand. Would you agree? Uh, I do not know um, if I agree. I do not know what you think of as an average um, developer. I think for, for really high performance stuff, I have seen uh, experienced programmers and uh, the results have always been the same. Okay. Uh, the C++ runs faster. Definitely. Uh, maybe maybe uh, the, the students were mistaught. I've seen a lot of people mistaught. Um, and uh, they, they, they think to, to optimize, they use complicated uh, methods of pointers and data structures and clever code. That's not the way it works. Um, uh, I have for the last many years when faced with an optimization problem in C++, you start uh, throwing away the clever stuff and see okay. if, uh, if, if it actually is fast enough already. And quite often it speeds up. And okay. after that, you, you measure it and see if there's anything that needs tuning. And so basically the first rule of the game is have your interfaces clean and uh, don't be too clever. Okay, now one last question, which strikes me again, because it's so fascinating. How do you program? Yeah, when, how do you like day or night, you usually like, like you, you hear some music or you, you listen to music. What do you like after so many years of programming, what did you find to be, you know, to put you in the flow mode, like in the best effective mode for programming? I, I do use music in the earphones. As a reason, these are high quality. They are, they are classical um, music quality uh, earphones. And uh, some of the stuff I do with classical, some of it is um, sort of the, the, the 70s um, sort of rock music, but not the, uh, not, not, not the stuff that, that changes too fast. So um, something like the later Beatles, uh, they, they change rhythm and they change. Uh, What's your IDE? What's your preferred IDE, for example? Oh, um, when I do little experiments myself, um, I, I tend to, to use the Visual Studio, which is actually a rather good IDE. And uh, because the C20 implementation, uh, which has been to a large extent driven by my uh, friend Gabby Das Reis has the better concepts and uh, the better module implementations today. Um, this is not going to, to last because they leapfrog each other, which is good, but that's the one I'm using. Now, if I'm working with a team, you have to use the tool chain of the team. And so um, it doesn't matter what my favorite tool is. <laughs> uh, the perfect the, the, a, a good helper doesn't come in and say, you do it my way, in our ways. And it's very hard for a large project, for an industrial project with, with several people, uh, many people, to change 
the tool chain. So even changing part of the tool chain is, is, is difficult. So um, I do use whatever IDE or whatever uh, command line uh, tools uh, are, are available. And uh, what I prefer doesn't matter too much. Uh, for my own projects, they're relatively small. Um, and I tend to, I have a little computer here. It's a 12 inch uh, screen. Uh, you, you have to have something that fits. Okay, thank you so much. Now, a 12 C++ or programming, uh, uh, again, I would call it principles and practice using C++. Which one is better to the beginner who want to just explore the endless possibilities of C++? What, what was the alternative? A tour of C++. This is your book, a tour, a tour of C++. Yeah. And programming principles and practice using C++. You know, oh, the book for, the... for beginners, for beginners, don't use uh, the C++ programming language fourth edition. No, it, it is both old and it was never written for rank beginners. If you are a rank beginner and want to go with C++, take uh, principles, uh, programming principles and practice using C++, because it actually does try and teach you something about programming. If you are already a programmer, look to a tour of C++. It is for starters, uh, less than 300 pages. You can read it in, after, in, a, in a weekend. Okay, but so that's, I, that, that is for people who are already programmers. So again, if you want, if you just, if you're a beginner, this is, this one, is the book, yeah. Programming Principle Using C++. And if you already know something about the language, the tree of C++, second edition. Yep. Okay. If you want to a uh, refresher or if you're coming in from a language that's not too alien. This C++. is not a good book for the beginner. Very no. important. Don't go, this is... And, and there are students that says, I want to know everything. And they go straight to the, this book. Um, so, somebody told me that in the old days when you had to make, um, make, make, make lenses for telescopes and you needed 10-inch telescopes, the amateurs try to do a 10-inch telescope uh, uh, lens and it breaks and it's bad. More experience. They try with a five inch, then they go to an eight inch, and now they have the skill set so they can do a good ten, uh, ten inch. You shouldn't rush for the every absurd detail. Every language has to be learned starting with a subset. That's true even for C. And by the way, C is not the optimal learning subset of C++. <laughs> Bjorn Strustrup, thank you so much. I've learned so much from you in this talk today. Wow. First, we are not a programmer, you are a developer about Bell Labs, about, you know, the idea of object-oriented. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so, so much for your effort. Thank you so much for C++. You know, you just contributed so much to humanity. And this is my humble way of, thing, of saying thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you. Bye. <laughs> bye, bye. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה 
שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.